So this video we just watched, it ended with the people longing for and it pointing towards the need for a true and greater high priest. Now, the reason that it, there's this need and this desire to have someone to truly intercede between broken, fallen humans who still make mistakes and a God who is perfect is because even though there could be sacrifices made, there were still not enough sacrifices made for enough animals and their bloodshed to deal with this thing, a guilty conscience. Now, one of the great claims that Christianity makes is that Christianity can solve the problem of a guilty conscience. Now, to make sure we're on the same page, let's understand and know what a conscience actually is. Oop, too many. I don't know what happened. Um, there, I went. Okay, that one. And that, there we are. Okay, here's what the conscience is. It's a God-given innate ability placed inside a person that helps them to sense right from wrong. Now, your conscience is not Jiminy Cricket. It is not this thing that you get from God when you become a real boy or a real girl. Your conscience is actually, I believe, given, the Bible points to this, is actually given to all of us. This is referred to as a common grace from God. Whether or not you believe in him or not, you have, because you are, I believe, made in his image, you have a conscience. Even those of us in the room who would say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in this, or I'm agnostic, I'm kind of, maybe there is, maybe there isn't we all could kind of get on the level playing field and agree that there's just something in us that knows that's right and that's wrong. And that thing that helps us know that is our conscience, not the voice of the evil one. It's not the voice necessarily even of God. It's just that thing inside of us that knows something is right, something is wrong. And when people talk about a guilty conscience, a lot of times what they're talking about is that reality that we can know and sense when we did something wrong wrong. We feel that guilt. Can I teach you guys something today? may not have known or understood. Hopefully um, you're going to get it anyway, whether you want it or not. So here we go. Um, There's really two types of guilt. There is overt guilt. And overt guilt is when you um, cheated on a test when you were in high school or when you lied to someone or you had an affair or you did something that was nefarious and wrong. That is overt guilt. It is out in the open. You, you experience it. You know you did something wrong and you feel that. It's something that is out there in the open. It's obvious. That is overt guilt. Now, If you're like me, you have done things wrong and you have experienced bad things that you've done. What happens oftentimes is guilt doesn't just leave us and guilt, guilt takes us one step further. Guilt takes us into this place we all hate called shame. Guilt goes from I did something bad and takes it a step further and says in shame, I am something bad. And we felt that because of what we've done in this life. But while there is overt guilt, there's a secondary type of guilt called covert guilt. Covert guilt is the low-grade guilt in sense that we all have an experience. The best place I could take you in God's word to show you this is the difference between what we see in Adam and Eve in chapter two and what we see in Adam and Eve in chapter three. If you go back all the way to Genesis, right at the very beginning, Adam and Eve are there. And what is one of the key identifying characteristics of these two human beings? If you look at them from the outside, they're buck naked, all right? (laughs) And what's awesome is they're completely okay with that in Genesis chapter two. 
But fast forward to Genesis chapter three, they're out there making organic underwear for each other because something happened. What happened? Sin. So you can take this couple and in one moment, completely naked and completely fine with it. And then one chapter later, post sin, they don't know really where it came from, but they know something's not right and something has to be covered up. That is covert guilt. And that is what I believe all of us feel and experience. It's that something inside of you that just knows something isn't right. It's that something inside of you that kind of feels like you're always on trial and the jury is still out on whether or not you are a good person or a bad person or whether or not you matter or do you not matter. And this covert guilt is one of the things that I think is what is on the outside we see as workaholism or on the outside we see as someone posturing as this really tough guy or on the outside someone showing themselves to be just the perfect model of a mother or of model of womanhood. A lot of those things are really just rooted in covert guilt and the big question of whether or not I really matter and am I really a good person because I know what I've done. And so maybe just maybe I need to do more things so that I can feel good about who I am. Now, there's some of you in this room and you're like, man, I ain't got a guilty conscience. I feel good. I ain't done nothing wrong. I'm good. I've told everybody what I've ever done. I gave that Snickers bar back that I stole. I paid them back in full. I'm good. I'm good. Now, you may be good and cleared from all of your overt guilt, all the things you actually know you've done. But I want to just pause for a second because I think the thing that levels the playing field in this entire room and everybody watching online is overt guilt. So I want to talk to you. I want to show you some signs that maybe just maybe you're actually still struggling with a guilty conscience and you don't even realize it. See if you see any of these signs in your own life. Here's a sign that you may be struggling with a guilty conscience and not even realizing it. One, close relationships with you never seem to last. Two, you're chronically tired and distracted. Three, you joke really harshly at other people's expense, thinking that tearing them down will help you feel better about yourself. Four, or three, I don't know. You respond dramatically, maybe even over dramatically, when someone questions or criticizes you. Next one is you avoid any instance where your actions would be called into question. Next one is you're paranoid about what everybody else thinks about you because you think that what you think about you is what they think about you. Last one. These are, again, ways that you can see the signs that you're actually struggling with guilt that you don't even realize you're struggling with is you sabotage your own efforts whether in work or in relationships. You subconsciously think, well, I don't deserve a job this good. And so you show up late, you make excuses and you don't work as hard as you should. You think I don't really deserve a relationship. If, if, if she knew what I know about me, I don't deserve a relationship like this. So you self-sabotage that thing because you don't feel like you're someone who even deserves it. See, maybe you've connected and related to some of those. 
and you see the signs that maybe there is something actually going on beneath the surface in our conscious, this part of us that knows that something is not just right between me and the people around me. And I would be even willing to push it a step further today and say, what if the angst and the perpetual posturing to feel like we're good enough or um, people really do like me for me, all of that is actually indicating and pointing towards not a dysfunction on the horizontal levels of our life in relationships with each other, but that dysfunction and that angst that we feel inside is actually pointing to a dysfunction between us and God. And our conscience is not just guilty about the secret we're keeping from a spouse or a friend or from family or from work, but there's actually dysfunction in our lives between the secrets we think we're keeping between us and God. And we know that something is distant and broken between us and our relationship with God. The passage we're gonna walk through today leans into our conscience, talks about what the Bible means when it says it, and then it offers us the only way to a clean conscience in Christ. If you got a Bible, hopefully you're already in Hebrews chapter nine. If not, please go there. Let's walk through this. Hebrews chapter nine. We're gonna start at verse, kind of the back half of chapter nine, Verse nine, the reason I'm starting there is because, and you can read this at home on your own time, what he does in verses one through 10 is he goes back through and he explains the different, different integral pieces of the tabernacle system, the offering system. And so he walks through the holy place and then there's another step in there, the most holy place. And we saw that on the video when you saw the tent. That's what he's walking them through and explaining. He's talking about what the priest would do in order to, on the one day a year, this is what the Hebrew people would do, on the one day a year, they, it was called the day of atonement. It was a day where um, their sins were gonna be hopefully atoned for what the priest would go and do. And so he goes into elaborate detail for nine verses explaining all of this. And then he makes his point at the back half of verse nine. Look at what he says. According to this arrangement, and when he says this arrangement, he's pointing to everything in the nine verses that were above that. According to this arrangement, gifts, all the sacrifices that are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of these Hebrew people and I'm doing all these things, I'm giving my best animal to be sacrificed, even if I'm the priest who like, this is my job, and I come and I read this and I realize all this work, all this effort, all these things I'm doing, it still can't make this inner thing on the inside of me that goes, something is wrong. It still can't fix that. It still can't solve that. There's this realization that comes when we get that that goes, well, where's my hope? What's the solution? If all this stuff that I'm doing on the outside, it can't fix what's broken on the inside, where should my hope be? That's what this passage leans into. It says all this arrangement, all these gifts and sacrifices and all this other type of stuff, this outward stuff, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deals only with food and drinks and various washing and regulations the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what he's doing here, he's pointing to them and pointing to us. Because again, even though nobody in this room is Jewish, nobody in this, or most people in this room, somebody probably is, I don't know. You, you may not know you are. Um, this isn't our backstory, but what may have happened here is, is we have to understand that this is a story that we're now brought in on because now we're one in Christ. And this is a part of their story. And the big thing that he's pointing to here is there's this moment in time, when he says the time of reformation, there's this moment in time where this whole system 
experienced reform. We hear on the news and you know, social media and everything else about like we need you know, reform in our schools. We need reform in, in, in how we feed the, uh, feed the hunger. We need reform in these areas. Well, in Jesus, there is a time of reformation and it was this moment in time where Jesus comes on the scene and reforms this whole order that up until that point was the royal priesthood. And the way that this can happen is not just because Jesus had his alarm set for Reformation Day, it's because Jesus was the great reformer. When he talks about reformation, what we're gonna get into here is he's not just talking about reforming systems so that they work better for the people involved. What he's actually talking about is an inner reformation of the human heart. And the only one who can bring reformation to the human heart is the one who from creation brought formation to it to begin with. And that's why the next verse goes straight to Jesus. But when Christ appeared, the inauguration of this time of reformation, when Christ appeared as high priest, again, this is what all that stuff in the video I was showing to you was pointing to, when he appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, again, that was in the video, there was a tent, that was where God was going to show up. Well, Jesus is now a true and greater tent. He's not made by human hands. He's the one who brings heaven to earth in his flesh. It's not of this creation. Verse 12. He entered in once and for all the holy place. Again, he did that once and for all. The regular high priest, the human high priest from the line of Aaron, they would go into that place once a year on the day of atonement. It says Jesus does that once and for all. And he goes in not to sacrifice other animals, but to be the sacrifice and to sacrifice himself. That's why it says, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. What does he do with his own blood? This own blood thus secures an eternal redemption. I, I, like, I don't know, man. This is just parts of scripture where you can read over and you can just fly through. But when you read that last, even this is the bottom line right here, through his own blood, he secures an eternal redemption. That's gotta be one of those verses that just causes something in our hearts to go. I know there is a magnitude that I maybe even in this moment right now, sitting in my living room or sitting in my easy chair or sitting at church, can't fully get my mind around. But friend, my prayer is that you come to church not just longing to feel something, but longing to learn something. And I want you to learn what this verse is leaning to. So let's start the back part. It says, by his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption. So if there has been this thing that has been eternally secured for you and he calls it redemption, well, what in the world is that? What is redemption? What does that mean? To as biblically as I can define what redemption is for you. Redemption is the purchasing back of something that had been lost by the payment of a ransom. Redemption is the purchasing back of something that's been lost by the payment of a ransom. And so what this verse means, what this is saying is you, friend, are the thing that was lost and you were purchased back by a ransom. That's what redemption means is that you were God's and God was yours. That's to go back to Genesis chapter two. But because of sin, what y'all had, what we should have had there in the garden, that was lost but through the payment of a ransom. Now we know, we're gonna to get to more today, the payment of that ransom was not money. The payment of the ransom was the blood of the innocent son, Jesus Christ, 
we are now brought back into what we were originally supposed to be in perfect, holy union with Heavenly Father. Now, when we think about redemption, as people who have maybe been going to church for a long time, we think about it, in my opinion, one-sided. Because we make such a big deal about what's gonna happen after we die, and because we want to know what is in our future, we're very future-oriented people, when we think about redemption, we think about what we're redeemed to. And that's a big deal. When we walk through Ephesians, it said, we are redeemed by Jesus for adoption into this new family of God, which that's a huge deal, man. I'm, I'm now, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I get God as a father, I get Jesus as a brother, I get the Holy Spirit as a God. That is awesome. But what we need to also understand is what we've been redeemed from, okay? Because that's what the big price was paid for. So I wanna walk you through this. Three things that are easy to remember, I'm not even gonna put on the screen. What you're redeemed from is the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. And that encompasses all of your past and all the sins that you committed there. It encompasses your right now and the struggle that you have with sin and its power on your life. And it encompasses what is going to happen at the end that you actually are redeemed from the very presence of sin. I know you look down on this world and you're like, man, there's a lot of sin. I can't turn on my TV. I can't open my phone. I can't even talk to my kids without being like, boom, there's a presence of sin. It's everywhere. But what happens in the redemption, and again, this is the redemption that we're hoping for, is that there's gonna come a time when Jesus is gonna return and make earth his home. Heaven will come to earth. His kingdom will reign here. And Jonesboro Road will be a road where there is sin no more where McDonald will be a place where there is sin no more, where we as people who are in Christ will experience a life fully freed from the full presence of sin, the power of sin as we would fight it, and the penalty of sin that we deserve because we committed it. That is what is offered at redemption. Now, this is awesome here. This is the bonus of this thing, is it says Jesus has secured that. Now, what that means is there's nothing that you could go through on this earth or that somebody could put you through on this earth. No scheme of man or no power of hell can unsecure what Jesus has made secure. That is a great place for an amen. He secured that for me and for you. And so that's, that's what he has done by his blood. Now, what's awesome here is, and this is what the pastor to the church of Hebrews is trying to explain to them, is this could have never happened by bringing in your favorite goat and giving it to the high priest. There was no eternal security. That's why he had to do it every single year. So let's go on to verse 13. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, my favorite animal term in the Bible, heifer, heifer, my <laughs> for if the, oh, sorry, I get distracted. Every time I hear it, I gotta laugh a little bit. For if the blood of goats, I'm just so glad the ESV, that's, you, people ask me sometimes, why do you use the ESV? It's because it doesn't translate it cow, it says heifer. That's why I use the ESV. <laughs> For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Okay, pause right here, because you read this by itself, verse 13 by itself, you go, that sounds like an incomplete sentence, it's pointing to something, because it is. What the author is getting ready to do, and he's doing here, is he's making what's referred to in literary terms as a lesser than to greater than argument. 
He's saying in the old system, how things used to be, here's the good thing that it actually did. But how much more now, not in that old messed up system, but in Jesus, is there going to be greater implications and even greater reward? So he says in the um, old system, there was blood of goats, bulls, sprinkling on defiled persons with the ashes of heifer. That's sanctified for the purification of what? Flesh. Now, where's the flesh at? It's just this outward stuff. It's outward cleansing. It's outward washing. That's why if you go back and you read the book of Leviticus and you study what they had to do in the Old Testament, there were all these things where they had to do certain tasks to make sure they were clean. You hear over and over again, clean and unclean, clean and unclean. And what's happening there is God wanted them, God doesn't care about dirt necessarily, but God wanted to use this system of cleanliness and uncleanliness to be a representation of how their hearts and how their insides were before him. And he wants them to take this cleanliness serious. God is not necessarily a germaphobe. So your mom who's like, cleanliness is next to godliness. Like, yes, we should wash our hands. But what God's really most concerned with is not me passing the flu to you. He's really more concerned with my heart. Still wash your hands. But what it's saying here, as important as all of this system and process and cleansing that God instituted for a reason, as important as all that was, the best it could do was clean up the outside. Verse 14. Now, again, this is lesser than to greater than argument. That's why you see this. How much more then, if that could just do this, how much more then, not with the blood of heifers, but the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Love this verse. This is what I've begun to refer to as a weak verse, not W-E-A-K, but W-E-E-K. This is a verse that you will take all week to know and understand and, and to figure out what in the world this actually means. These are one of my favorite types of verses. Anytime you come across a passage in scripture and you see Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit, all in one verse, highlight that thing, lean into that thing, commit that to memory because there is the full gospel usually bound up in that one verse. I hope you see it. How much more with the blood of Christ, the Son, who through the Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the Father, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what this verse is saying to us is there is finally in Jesus a solution to a guilty conscience. That while these outward things where we could take ashes from a heifer and blood from goats, and it could, for those people, it could, it could sanctify and make clean their outward flesh. Now in this moment, if the blood of a goat or an animal could do a little bit to keep you clean, how much more so now would the blood of the very son of God actually clean, not just you on the outside, but your very conscious, that internal part of you that realizes something is broken and wrong. And so what I wanna walk with you through for the remainder of our time are ways that we can understand what happens when Christ cleanses our conscience. So if you're taking note, what happens when Christ cleanses our conscience? Two of them are in this verse and one we're gonna have to go outside of this passage to find. But what happens when Christ cleanses our conscience? The first thing is we go from guilt to purity. 
We go from people who realize and understand and know for sure that we have done some things wrong. We have messed up. We have told the lies. We have failed Jesus over and over again. But if you're fully in Christ and you understand what his blood has done from you, you actually move from guilt to purity. Now, again, in our modern church context, usually when we talk about purity, we think about, you know, sexual purity. But at the end of the day, that's an aspect of it, but it's so much larger and all encompassing than that. When Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last, he says this word, tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished. It's Jesus' way of saying a word from the cross that was also a word that was used in accounting. So if you were able to go back to the Middle East, go back all the way to the time of Jesus and you would go to an accountant's office, which of all the places you could go, it sounds like the most boring place to go. But if that's you, you wanna go there, you could go and start looking through his files and in the bills that had been paid at the top of those bills, you would see the word tetelestai because it meant and indicated that this bill had now been paid in full. And when Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, it is finished. He's saying, Tetelestai, my blood shed here is covering all of their sins, removing the guilt of those who had put their faith in this finished work of mine and is pulling them and creating in them not just an outward purity, but a deep on the inside purity that will work its way from the inside of who they are into the outside aspects of their life. Now, when we think about purity, even for those of us who feel like we've maybe been walking with Jesus for a really long time, man, it just does not seem to really feel like our reality. Because we still ask these big questions like, man, how is it really that Jesus is dying on a cross can make me right with God? And again, that's one of those things, like asking the question, how could God become man? It's one of those questions that, about Christianity that is so big that you're not supposed to figure that out all the way here. But to make it make a, as much sense as I maybe can and give you a metaphor that's still probably gonna fail, if you come to me and you're like, hey, Pastor, I need to borrow your car and I'll let you borrow my, my SUV and you ride and taking everything else. And, and, and somehow, for some reason, you, you get on 75 and you're you know, texting your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever. And um, in this scenario, I let a middle, or not a middle school, a high schooler borrow my car, which you can, poor life choice. Um, <laughs> they borrow it, they're texting, all this other type of stuff. They get in a wreck, they flip it 14 times, completely totaled. And they come to me and they're like, hey, you know, what had happened was, was um, like, I had to change debit cards and need to move some stuff from my check-ins to my savings. And, and long story short, I don't have any insurance. And so like my, you know, my mama said, this was my thing to deal with. And I, I can't deal with it. You know, Pastor, I don't, I don't know what to do. And I just said, <clears throat> okay, uh, well, you know what? Um, I'll just walk. You know, it's a long way from from Jackson to McDonough, but man, I'll get there, you know, or I got a, I got a, I got a good bike, you know, it'll get me there. I'll, I'll get there. I'll, I'll be able to make it. It'll be fine. What's happened is something that was of immense value has been completely wrecked, but nobody has paid for the thing that was wrecked. We just said, it's okay. Move on. We're good. That's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does is in this scenario, it would be me going, I hear you, you owe me a new car. But I'm gonna go buy myself a new car. I'm gonna pay for what you owe me out of my resources. And that's what Jesus does for us. 
So, so we ask, how can I be forgiven? It's because Jesus took out of his resources, his blood, the bloodshed that you should have shed. Now, let's talk about blood for a second because people get all mixed up and there's, there's nothing more powerful in Christianity than the blood of Christ. But for some reason, we, we take it at about half of what it's really worth and that's usually what we lean into a lot. When we think about Jesus and you can go watch Passion of the Christ and you see how just brutal those things were and there's just carnage, blood everywhere. It's terrible, it makes us cry. And we watch stuff like that or you go to a Good Friday service and you look at Jesus and his bloodshed on the cross and you just go, oh my, Jesus loves me so much that he was willing to shed that blood for me. And friend, that's 100% true, but it's only half the story. Okay, track with me here. My family, we just got through going to the Canadian Rockies and up there in the Canadian Rockies, there's bears. There's black bears, grizzly bears, and apparently there's something called a cinnamon black bear, which I didn't even know. Again, just more bears to be afraid of. So up there, there are a lot of bears. And we're on this thing called the uh, Icefield Parkway. We're driving up to another national park. And as we're going up, there's a bear. And he's off to the side of the highway. And we see a couple of cars stop. We slow down. We see this bear from the confines of our cozy Jeep. All right. We're looking out at the bear. We see the bear. The boys laugh at the bear. Jessica goes, hey, bear. And the bear, as cute as it could be, just kind of peeks up and looks at Jessica. Uh, We have it on video. It's awesome. What I didn't do to my family in that moment, let's put the Jeep in park, turn and look at Jessica, turn and look at the boys. And go, listen, guys, the moment has come when I'm going to show you how much I love you, okay? (laughs) Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for those he loves. I am going to shed my blood now to show you all how much I love you. I am going to give my life to prove once and forever, family, that I love you. And I leave it in park, open the door and go over and I do my best and I just try to fight this bear with everything I have. But even though I work out, even though I can you know, bench a lot and squat some and I can do these things, the bear just absolutely rips me to shreds because he's a bear <laughs> and I'm a human and he kills me. And Jessica and the boys are just screaming, crying, tears everywhere and they come back and a couple weeks pass and you're like, where's Pastor Trent? You know, and, and the story gets out. Well, Pastor Trent really wanted to show his family how much he loved him. So he let a bear eat him. <laughs> you know, initially some of you guys are gonna be like, hmm, I hate that. But then the more realistic ones of you in the room are gonna be going, what kind of drugs are in Canada? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> You're crazy. Why are you going to, it makes no sense. Why would you show your family you love them by going and dying for them? That's not love, that's stupid. And again, that's where most of us leave the gospel of Jesus. He loved me so much that he shed his blood for me. And we fail to realize, yes, he loved you a lot and he shed his blood for you for sure. But he did it because you were sinful. He did it because the only way where you could get back to the father is if that bloodshed cleansed the filth that you had on the inside that manifests itself to the outside. It wasn't just, you love me so much. Yes, that's part of it. The other part is it had to happen. If you just look at the cross and go, how nice then it didn't have to happen because you should also look in the mirror and go, how gross. I need to be cleansed, set free, forgiven, purified of my guilty conscience. 
And so my, my prayer is that when we look at the cross, we'll never look at the cross without just going, how much does he love me? But we will also add to that, he is my savior. That is the place where I belong. That's what I deserved. That's what should be me up there. But he cleanses me. He purifies me. And now if my faith and trust is put in him, I can finally know that I am going where he is. The Bible, Christianity, what makes it so much different than any other major world religion is it says man's righteousness is as filthy rags unto God. What that means is there is no good works. There's no thing you could ever do to make yourself clean before God. He looks at your best attempts at cleanliness and it looks to him like used toilet paper. So you have to have purity. The next thing we see, and it shows up right here in verse 14, that happens to us when we're people who experience a clean conscience from Jesus is it purifies our conscience from these dead works to serve the living God. So the next thing that happens when our conscience is cleaned by Jesus is we go from dead works to loving service to a living God. When we really have been purified, when our consciences are clean, you don't just sit on your hands. Sometimes people ask, well, how do I know if I'm saved? Where do you serve? I like, I would, I would ask, if we were sitting across the table together, really, you know, I would, I would ask that a lot softer. But, um, And I'm not saying we, we work to earn our salvation, but you cannot say that this Middle Eastern man who supposedly gave his life for me, who was God in flesh, who took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist and cleaned the disgusting feet of 12 Palestinian men, one of whom he knew was the reason he was getting ready to be crucified, flogged the 39 um, times that he was, his back ripped open like hamburger meat, washed that guy's feet. You don't serve those people that way and believe that that man who served those people that way is your God and your Messiah, the person you're following and dedicating your life to and living your life after him and go, yeah, I'm kind of entitled and the world should serve me. No, you don't follow that guy and do that. When you see how much he has served you and what he's called you to do then in account or in, and because of that, you go, how could I not serve? And I'm not serving to get something out of it. I'm serving because of what he's done for me. It'd be like if I heard um, that you are someone who has a beach house. Now, I've, I've just got through going to the mountains. I'm trying to even things out. I want to go to the beach. And <laughs> you, I hear through the grapevine that uh, so-and-so family, we'll call them the Smiths. I hear the Smiths have a beach house and they got a beach house at the places I like to go to the beach, like way down at the tip of Florida, away from people. Uh, I want to go way down there where the good fishing is, okay? And I hear y'all have that beach house. I'm willing to drive or fly. I'll get there. I just need someplace to stay when I get there. So I hear that and I come up to you, even though we don't have the greatest relationship, I kind of know you would talk or cordial and everything else, but you're not like in my small group. I don't know your kids' names and that type of stuff. I just come up and I say, hey, you know what I've been wanting to do? I've been wanting to get to know you a little bit better. You know, I just, the Lord laid it on my heart. (laughs) 
that, that Jessica and I need to have you guys over. You know, we, we just ran into some steak and I just like to have you guys over at our house. We're gonna do a big steak dinner, steak and potatoes. You know, if you got any other things that you guys like, what's, your, what's some of your favorite food? You know, and, and, and you guys tell us and, and it's like, okay, we're, great. we're gonna do this big old thing. We're gonna have you guys over at the house. All right, we have this big dinner spread. Everything's out there. You know, I give my kids that speech. You better behave. Don't blow this for me. You know, like <laughs> we have all that conversation. I go and uh, go through my camera roll and I print out all the really good pictures of fish that I've caught and beach visits and vacations that we have. And I make sure those are all everywhere where you can see them when you come to my house. And we just kind of get there somehow in the conversation talking about the beach and how much we love going and how much we love offshore fishing and all these other types of things. And somewhere in the conversation, you go, you know what? We actually have a house in the Keys. You know what? Man, we'd love to just bless you guys with it. You got such a good heart. We just want to bless you. And in my head, I'm going, ka-ching. Uh, <laughs> like, I didn't do that because I love you. I did that because I love me. <laughs> you were a means to an end, not a friend. And friend, what I'm trying to tell you is, when you really love God, you don't serve him or his people, or his bride, the church, to get something out of it. That's the fastest way to know you're not really serving him. It's the fastest way to know you don't maybe even really love him in your service. You kind of love you and what would benefit you. And so the way that we know that we are actually people who have had clear conscience is it moves us to serve this living God. And if you're not serving here at NCC, I'd invite you to do that. I'd invite you to take a chance on experiencing what does it really look like to see and experience how much God has loved you so that you can go and serve other people as well. The last thing that we see happen when Jesus cleanses our conscience is it actually moves us from a place of dread to a place of eager expectation. A place of dread to eager expectation. And you're like, dread of what? Dread of the end. Here's the bad news. You're all gonna die. Everybody, it's gonna get everybody in here, all right? Unless Jesus comes back, which I hope really happens, unless he comes back while you're still alive, you're gonna see the sky rip open. It's gonna be wild. You're probably gonna pass out. We'll get you back up and uh, it'll be great. But track with me here. Most people, when you really sit down and start talking to them and you're like, okay, let's talk. Do you know where you're gonna go after you die? Most people don't like thinking about that. Like if I, if I roll that question out in the room right here and I go, where will you spend eternity? Will you spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, with the Father, guided by the Holy Spirit, or will you spend eternity in hell? Like right now, some of you are realizing, I didn't wear deodorant today. I'm, I can feel the sweat coming. This is not a question I like. Because these are the ones that kind of make us wiggle. This, these are the questions when we start talking about heaven and hell, when we start talking about eternity, when we start talking about judgment. Most of us, for whatever reason, I think some of the reason is we have low-grade guilt because we feel like we still have not done enough to work salvation into our life. We start to get afraid. We start feeling like, man, I gotta cross my fingers and hope and pray that I can, I'm gonna get in. Like I, I gotta give more um, to buy my way into heaven or I gotta serve more to work my way into heaven or I gotta make sure I've told every lie, I go back and tell the truth. Every lie that I ever told, I pay back anybody ever. I do all these things to make sure my slate is clean. And again, some of that, that's a, that's a really good thing. But at the end of the day, when you really realize what has been done for you in Jesus, you don't dread death. 
Death is something you actually look forward to with eager expectation. As morbid and as weird as that sounds. And this is why Christians mourn different than the rest of the world mourns. This is why a Christian funeral really should be much different than the rest of the people in the world's funeral. Is because we realize that death is not the end of the road. Death is a bend in the road that takes us to an eternal place where we see Jesus. And we look forward with eternal expectation to the one who has set us free. Now... I saw this fully on display. Um, there's been three guys, uh, three men of God at this church, all old enough to be my dad or my granddad. Um, and I've been able to have the just immense joy of walking with these guys through um, at least two, uh, one of them of, of what would be a terminal cancer diagnosis and, and two of them really, really bleak uh, cancer diagnoses. And having walked through and prayed through and navigated through those uh, cancer diagnosis, chemotherapy, and all the things that come with that with those three men, I watched outwardly their bodies waste away. Every week, I'd try to lighten the mood a little bit, and they'd show up, and they'd be about 50 pounds less than the last time I saw them. It looked like I just felt, man, there's just so much less of you to love nowadays. And uh, for better or for worse, I found myself reflecting on those guys and praying this to God. Father, I never want to get cancer. But if you allow cancer to be a part of my life and a part of my story, I pray that I walk through that valley the way I've seen these three men walk through it. The way I saw them walk through this with joy, the way I, walk through, the way I saw them walk through this and, and watch them as odd as it sounds because I'm the minister, the way they ministered to me, the way I saw what Paul says in one of his letters to the churches, he says, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I saw that on display in these three guys' lives, one after another, in very different circumstances, very different situations, and even different phases of life. I was able to see this in these guys' life, and I knew unequivocally that that is only something that Jesus does when he's living through a soul. And as much as they, I know, didn't want to leave their wives, um, the things that they would leave behind, their church family, their, their biological family, as much as I knew they didn't want to leave that, what I knew for sure is that these men eagerly ex- were eagerly expecting to see the face of their father in full clarity. And if cancer took them out, I knew they were okay with that because of where they knew they were going. And my, my question to you, my hope is for you in your life, is that it doesn't take a cancer or something catastrophic happening in your life for you to have that outlook on what will come at the end of this life. And so you can look at that end and reverse engineer your life and go, okay, if that's where I'm going, what do I need to do different and back into that? To know that if my conscience is cleansed by Jesus, if he has made me pure, then I no longer have to live in guilt. I am pure that if I have been cleansed by Jesus, then I don't have to try to work myself into this, but I can serve a living God and his living people. That if my conscience is clean, then I don't have to dread death, but I can eagerly expect and look forward to the time when this life will be over because it will carry me on into eternal life, fully freed from the presence of sin. It's power on my life. And my friend, I hope that you don't leave today with a conscience that's not clean. And if you want to experience that 
cleanliness, that cleanse conscious, that deep breath peace, I would today invite you to fully surrender to Jesus and take this first step of surrender. I believe that first step of surrender into a relationship with Jesus, according to what we see all through God's word, is baptism. I don't think there's any coincidence. So when Jesus says, here's how I want you to enter into a relationship with me, it involves water. It involves cleansing where I can go to the water, have all of my old sin, all of my mistakes washed away. And then the Bible tells us, I don't, re- I don't rise up out of the waters of baptism a cleaned version of the dirty person I was. The Bible says, I come out of the water a new creation. Jesus made it very clear. If anybody, in, if anybody has put their faith and their trust in me, it is no longer them who are living, but it's me who is living through them. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. And I would invite you today, if you want to leave with a clean conscience, I'd invite you into the waters of baptism. Uh, today, I'll be right out there in the back as, as we get ready to sing this last song. There's, there's another, there's, there's, there's a couple who's already getting baptized today. I'd love to add to you um, or add you to the list of how God's moving in our church. And for everybody else, if you know that you've already had that happen, communion is a weekly reminder that I have been set free. I have no more guilt. That if God were to punish me for my sins, he would be counting the punishment and the cost of sins twice because they were all paid in full on Christ. He's not punishing me. He's not out to get me. He's a father who loves me. I'm purified. I'm set free to serve. And I'm eagerly awaiting what may come in this life. We're gonna sing a song that talks about how we crown Jesus the Lord of, Lord of all. And uh, as that song is singing, and again, if you wanna give your life to Christ and experience a clean conscience and go through baptism, I'll be back there in the back. And for everybody else, I pray that you receive communion today knowing that it is through bloodshed that you are washed white as snow. And there's so much power in that. I pray you don't just taste it, but it becomes a part of who you are. Let's pray. Father God, move in our hearts, move in our lives. Do the things that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. I've tried my best to do my best, but Jesus, I ask that you take over now and do the things inside of a human heart that only you can do in your name.